President Trump claims he has an absolute right to pardon himself, does he? Sarah, I'm not going to answer hypothetical questions. That's not a hypothetical question. It's a direct question. It's a specific question. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. Can a president pardon I himself? Right. It's specific. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Hypothetical. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers uh, to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. I am... From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA, in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on KSO, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU, Columbus, Ohio's WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR, uh, in New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, Seattle, Washington's KODX, Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, and Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM950, KTNF. And yes, we stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day for your listening convenience on some fine streaming affiliates. For example, the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth, five days a week. Like it or not, I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow. Says me from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Coming up, day two of the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearings of Donald Trump's nominee to the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, That would be Brett Kavanaugh. And we will be joined by columnist and political scientist David Ferris, author of the new book, Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics, to discuss the hearings and whether Democrats are, well, I guess, fighting dirty enough or at all, for that matter, in response to this Extraordinary moment in U.S. history. Uh, But first, a few other news items of note for the day. Massachusetts primary voters went to the polls on Tuesday as the midterm primary season winds down this week. And next, on Thursday, Delaware holds its statewide primaries this week. That's Thursday. Next week, New Hampshire and Rhode Island will hold the final federal primaries of the year on Tuesday in New Hampshire, Wednesday in Rhode Island, before New Yorkers go to the polls for state and local primaries, including that much-watched progressive challenge by activist and actress Cynthia Nixon to sitting incumbent two-term Democratic Governor Andrew Cuomo on the Democratic side. But in Massachusetts on Tuesday, I'm happy to report I've yet to hear of any widespread voting or registration problems so far in Massachusetts. There's some good news, Desi Doyen. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, it hasn't I know happened it, a lot this year, but I so know, far. I know so far so good. You know? uh, as, as longtime listeners know, of course, it sometimes takes a while for problems to come to light. But for now, happily, no major reported problems. So on to some of the noteworthy results out of Massachusetts on Tuesday, as reported 
via the state's mostly hand-marked paper ballots that are optically scanned by computer tabulators. The big news of note, of national note, is progressive Democrat Ayanna Presley unseating 10-term, 20-year U.S. House veteran Democratic uh, Congressman Michael Capuano becoming the latest veteran lawmaker to go down against a progressive candidate in a stunning political upset. The 44-year-old Presley was the first woman of color ever elected to the Boston City Council and with no Republican challenger now running in the state's 7th Congressional District, Presley will now become the first black woman to ever represent Massachusetts in the U.S. House after what was Capuano's first primary challenge during his nearly two decades in office, his first serious challenge. He's been there uh, ten times, and nobody has challenged him until now. Presley seized on the progressive wins energizing the Democratic Party after 28-year-old Self-described Democratic Socialist Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez defeated Congressman Joe Crowley in New York a couple of months ago. He was the fourth highest Democrat in leadership in uh, in that primary earlier this summer. Presley argued that her election would better represent the 7th Congressional District, which is deeply diverse and liberal in the Boston area, more so than Capuano, and it appears the electorate on Tuesday agreed. Presley, uh, like Ocasio-Cortez and a number of other progressive Democrats running this year, also refused to take corporate PAC money. Capuano, uh, who who himself is one of the most liberal members in the Democratic caucus, uh, had argued that his decades of experience in Congress better equips him to fight against Trump's agenda. But he appears to have lost that argument. Uh, Presley's stunning reported victory over Capuano comes even though she had been lagging in the polls by double digits leading up to Tuesday's election. Uh, She was also uh, far out fundraised by Capuano. Uh, He raised uh, some one point seven million this election cycle compared to uh, Presley's uh, toll of about $900,000 in uh, small, non-corporate contributions. Capuano is the fourth incumbent lawmaker to lose in a primary this cycle, joining uh, the Democrat Crowley and Republicans uh, Congressman Robert Pittenger of North Carolina and Mark Sanford of South Carolina. She said, uh, Presley said, quote, I stand on the shoulders of those disruptors that came before me, the farm workers, the union workers, the abolitionists, the suffragettes and athletes from Jesse Owens to Colin Kaepernick. For the record, uh, this uh, seat, the 7th Congressional District was uh, once held by John F. Kennedy starting in 1952, then Tip O'Neill in 1986. So she's in very good company. Then Joe Kennedy the second in 98, then Michael Capuano, and now Ayanna Presley. So there you go. Yeah, good company indeed. Other than that, Massachusetts Democratic Senator and potential 2020 presidential contender Elizabeth Warren in Massachusetts ran uncontested for her Democratic nomination. She will now face Republican state Rep. Jeff Deal in November. Deal reportedly defeated two other GOP primary candidates handily. 
He had the closest of the uh, the closest ties to Donald Trump of the three of them. He had co-chaired Trump's 2016 Massachusetts campaign, and of course attacked the wildly popular progressive Warren for being too politically extreme. Well, good luck with that, Mr. Deal. Uh, but at least Trump will have his candidate now running against the woman, uh, one of many, uh, who seems to scare him to death, Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> yes, he does seem to not like women very much. Oh, any of them. No. Nope. Uh, popular uh, Republican governor Charlie Baker easily won his party's primary for a second term, defeating Scott Lively, a right-wing minister and a uh, big Trump supporter who had derided Baker who's a frequent critic of the president as being a rhino, a Republican in name only. Uh, Baker is one of the last surviving so-called moderate Republicans in the world, I think, at this point. He's been popular with voters in what is often seen as one of the nation's bluest, so-called bluest states. Baker will face Democrat Jay Gonzalez in November. He served as Secretary of uh, of Administration and Finance under former Massachusetts Democratic Governor Deval Patrick and easily defeated his primary opponent on Tuesday. There's still a very close race reported in the state's third U.S. House district between Lori Trahan and Daniel Coe, who, as of today's unofficial results are separated by just 52 votes. Oh, wow. Just 52 votes out of some 90,000 votes that were cast in this crowded 10-person field vying for the Democratic nomination to run against the Republican Rick Green, who ran uncontested on Tuesday for the seat being vacated by Democrat Nikki Songus. That's the late Paul Songus's wife. Uh, she announced she would not be running again this year. No other major surprises or controversies in Massachusetts, in, uh, in Massachusetts on Tuesday, to my knowledge, but we'll find out. And by the way, this is your reminder that Delaware is holding its midterm primary on Thursday, Thursday, where progressive uh, U.S. Air Force vet Carrie Evelyn Harris could become the first LGBTQ Delawarean elected to federal office if she defeats longtime U.S. Senator Tom Carper, uh, the Democrat uh, who, uh, though he is way ahead in the very little public polling available, uh, has to kind of be looking at Presley's win, huge win in Massachusetts on Tuesday, Ocasio-Cortez's victory in New York in June, and being a little bit worried right around now. Yeah, I would think so. But we will see. All right, on to uh, day two of Judge Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee on Wednesday, which began as Tuesday left off with more protests, uh, which continued at various points throughout the day, um, beginning with one protester shouting, Sham President, Sham Justice. The suggestion by Judiciary Committee Chair Chuck Grassley on Wednesday that the protesters who had disrupted the first day of the Kavanaugh hearings uh, throughout the day it wasn't as much uh, no, today, was, would you say, a little bit less today? It was a lot less today, yeah. and it wasn't quite as coordinated. It would be more punctuation, more than uh, the uh, extended disruptions that did occur yesterday. Well, Grassley blamed the Democrats for uh, what happened yesterday. Uh, and when he did, that apparently drew even more protests. <laughs> yes. uh, so 
One protester said, uh, who one protester in a wheelchair said while security was removing her from the room, said, we are not working with Democrats. We are working for ourselves. And I can confirm that because there were a lot of times when there were dramatic moments during the hearing when it seemed like the protesters were stepping on what would be important information. Grassley uh, kicked off the second day of the hearings by noting that Senate Democrats had interrupted Tuesday's proceedings 63 times. Good. Oh, and that was all before lunch and that 70 <laughs> protesters were arrested. Uh, this, uh, that, that, of course, that announcement started a new wave of protesters and uh, some were debunking or rebuking Grassley's claim that they were actually working and coordinated somehow with uh, Democrats. Grassley then gave Kavanaugh a chance to offer uh, what TPM calls a prebuttal to concerns raised by Democrats that he won't be an independent check on Donald Trump, who, after all, nominated him to the Supreme Court and who, after all, could find himself at the Supreme Court, uh, depending on what may happen with any of the uh, several criminal investigations looking into uh, Donald Trump and his campaign and every, everyone else. Kavanaugh said uh, no one is above the law in our constitutional system, adding the judges should make decisions based on the law, not on policy, not, quote, not on policy, not based on political pressure, not based on the identity of the political parties. Oh, well, good. I feel much better. <laughs> I totally believe him. Yeah. Uh, to stress his point, Kavanaugh brought up a number of Supreme Court cases where justices ruled against the presidents who appointed them, including U.S. v. Nixon, where the court ordered President Richard Nixon to hand over subpoenaed materials such as audio tapes uh, under subpoena. And uh, but Kavanaugh had previously questioned the decision uh, in U.S. v. Nixon back during a 1999 interview. So he was either telling the truth then or now. Take your pick. He seems to have a new position now that he's being questioned about it, or at least he's hoping to give that impression to the uh, to the senators. Uh, he later, however, refused to say whether a president could be subpoenaed. A critical issue in the ongoing special counsel probe of Russian election interference alleged calling the question uh, hypothetical. It's a hypothetical question, so no response. The question specifically that was asked by Senator Dianne Feinstein was simply, can a sitting president be required to respond to a subpoena? That's not really a hypothetical question. That's a constitutional question. Kavanaugh said, I can't give you an answer to that hypothetical question. Seems like he should have been able to uh, to respond to that. It wasn't, you know, can't will, you know, this president be respond, uh, you know, responding to a, some specific issue or not. It was just can a sitting president be required to respond to a subpoena, respond even to try to quash that subpoena. Kavanaugh was uh, suggesting a sitting president may not have to give any answer at all, could completely ignore it. Uh, 
And he pretty much did that with every single major substantive question that Democrats asked him. He said, oh, well, you know, that's a hypothetical and it would be wrong of me to talk about something that might become come before me as a justice. That's what they all do. And they cite the Ginsburg, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I guess was the first one to do that. But I think the questions that she didn't want to respond to were very very specific, specific and narrowly yeah. targeted, yeah. but uh, and, and, then, and so in this case, it didn't really apply. Um, but that's of they course use what it he's, for everyone. He's Everything getting away now. with that. Yep. Yeah. And uh, back in 1999, by the way, uh, according to AP, uh, Kavanaugh had said, "quote that uh, quote maybe Nixon was wrongly decided because the case quote took away the power of the president to control information." in the executive branch by holding that the courts had power and jurisdiction to order the president to disclose information in response to a subpoena sought by a subordinate executive branch official. So he was uh, playing pretty fast and loose with what he wanted to answer. Now he claims he supports U.S. v. Nixon, cites it as a, a good ruling by the court, but won't say himself whether a sitting president should be required to respond to a subpoena. Kavanaugh demurred also from a question from Senator Patrick Leahy asked him uh, who asked him about presidential pardon power and whether it extends to a president being able to pardon himself. Another question that seems like uh, it's a constitutional issue. Can a president pardon himself? Yes or no. But he says it's something that he's never analyzed. It's a question that he's not written about. It's a question, therefore, that is hypothetical. And he couldn't begin to answer in this context as a sitting judge and as a nominee to the Supreme Court. Uh, Also of note in Wednesday's hearings, Patrick Leahy's uh, revelation that uh, seems to have caught Kavanaugh off guard. Really, the the only thing that seems to have caught him off guard so far Uh, that he may have had access to email that was stolen from Leahy and other Democrats during Senate confirmation uh, battles back during the George W. Bush administration. While Kavanaugh worked for the administration in the White House and he was helping to shepherd Bush's nominations through U.S. Senate hearings, that appears to have thrown him off of his rehearsed responses at least a little bit. He was uh, seemingly surprised by the question and the emails that Leahy was showing him that he seems to have been sent regarding these stolen emails. I'll try to play some audio from that exchange a little bit later today, but uh, my guest is standing by, so I want to get to him to discuss what, if anything, Democrats will be able to do if and when Republicans jam through Kavanaugh's seating to the highest court in the land, no matter what comes out of the committee hearings this week. Because, you know, right now, that's what they plan to do. David Ferris joins us next on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Now they're planning the crime of the century. Well, 
they're not planning it. It's being carried out in front of our very eyes. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Ever since Justice Anthony Kennedy's retirement announcement earlier this summer and the subsequent nomination of Judge Brett Kavanaugh by Donald Trump to fill his seat, we've been talking, suggesting, asking about the idea of Democrats walking out of the Senate entirely to use the Constitution's Article 1, Section 5 power to essentially try and shut down the U.S. Senate for a lack of a constitutionally mandated quorum if Republicans insist on a vote on Kavanaugh's nomination before the voice of the American people can be heard this November. Uh, when it's possible, not necessarily likely, but possible that Democrats could take back a majority in the U.S. Senate. After all, GOP Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell had prevented a vote on Barack Obama's nominee, uh, uh, nominee to the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland, to fill the seat vacated by Justice Antonin, Antonin Scalia for nearly a year under the premise that the American people should have a voice in such an important decision. In the meantime, Kennedy's retirement was only official as of last month, and the midterm elections are now two months away. That versus what McConnell did when he held up uh, any vote at all for, uh, well, uh, pretty much a year until there was a new justice seated to replace Scalia. There would certainly be a downside to uh, the strategy of walking out entirely. And now, with former Arizona Senator John Kyle named to fill the seat vacated by the late John McCain, even if every Democrat walked out, there would still be... 51 Republicans in the U.S. Senate, allowing them to continue on with business as usual with no Democrats present. Nonetheless, as we discussed a bit with Richard Eskow on yesterday's broadcast, a united show of strong opposition by Democrats to the strong arming being done by Republicans to jam through a Supreme Court justice whose seating in Kennedy's swing vote position will almost certainly result in tons of long-fought civil rights and landmark statutes being overturned, that at least would demonstrate the Democrats are willing to rise to the gunfight long brought by Republicans with something other than a butter knife. And while walking out of the Senate is, so far, not apparently on the Democratic agenda to fight back, it appears they did consider walking out of the Senate Judiciary Committee confirmation hearings this week. In the hours leading up to the Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh's hearings, um, the first day on Tuesday, Senate Democrats debated the best strategy to show their disapproval, weighing walkouts and boycotts before settling on organized and sustained disruption. According to a Tuesday Politico report, the younger, aggressive Democratic members of the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, compromised with the older members of the committee, who hew more closely to tradition and decorum, deciding to attend the hearings but to hijack the proceedings as best they could, Less than a minute into Senator Chuck Grassley's uh, opening statement, the Democrats interrupted one after another with monologues about the lack of transparency surrounding this entire process, as well as the paucity of Kavanaugh's record that they had been given with some 100 pages of documents withheld by the Trump White House on Friday night regarding Kavanaugh's years working for George W. Bush's White House. And then... 42,000 pages of documents dumped on the committee on Labor Day Monday night before Tuesday's hearings 
were to begin, just before they were to begin. So the Democrats didn't walk out of the committee, but should they have? Should they still? These hearings will be going on all week in the committee, and it's interesting that uh, Politico reports it was the younger, hungrier Democrats, if you will, calling for that more aggressive strategy of a walkout. Does that signal at least that a change is at least coming to the Democratic Party, albeit slower than some of us might like? Will they ever learn to fight like Republicans do, or at least as hard as Republicans do? Here to discuss all of that and more is the man who wrote the book calling for Democrats to fight a bit dirtier than they ever seem willing to fight. David Ferris is a contributor at The Week. He's associate professor and chair of the Department of Political Science and Public Administration at Roosevelt University in Chicago and author of the new book, It's Time to Fight Dirty, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority in American Politics. David Ferris, welcome back to the broadcast, sir. Great to be here again, Brad. It has been a long time since you joined us, I just realized. I think it was like February, <laughs> I think. That's forever ago in Trump time. Last time you were here, yeah. I congratulated you. Like yeah, it seems like <laughs> it. Last time you were here, I congratulated you on your new book, Time to Fight Dirty. And today I get to congratulate you on your new baby. So congratulations oh, there, sir. <laughs> Thank you very much. It's uh, a, a special time. I'm a little sleep deprived. <laughs> I, I know. I suspect you are. And that's why I hadn't bothered you for a while to let you enjoy that. But the fun is over, Ferris. Uh, lot, yeah, yeah, lots, <laughs> lots to talk about today, uh, including one of the arguments from your book that we discussed last time you were on regarding the need for Democrats to pack the U.S. Supreme Court by adding several seats if and when they ever take power again to counter the GOP theft of the court's majority under uh, Republican rule. But first, your uh, your latest column at the week is, is, is on, quote, the incredible transformation of the Democratic Party. To that end, I think there was another big progressive win for Democrats on Tuesday in Massachusetts as Ayanna Presley unseated 10-term Establishment Democrat Michael Capuano in the uh, 7th Congressional District in Massachusetts. I'm interested in your thoughts on that race and the similarly stunning victory by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in New York a few months ago. Democratic uh, Florida gubernatorial nominee Andrew Gillum. I think that was just last week. Are we looking at a progressive wave taking over the Democratic Party at this point? Or shall I be skeptical here because uh, setting the Florida Democrats nomination aside, these House victories for Ocasio-Cortez and now Presley, they're really limited in scope, are they not? We're talking about two very liberal districts in New York and Massachusetts uh, here. Or is there uh, something else going on? Well, I mean, I, I think the answer is yes and no, right? Um, I think that we've seen progressive candidates win in some high-profile races. Um, I think you, you mentioned the most prominent ones, but also, you know, Stacey Abrams in Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, you know, what's interesting about the about the Presley race um, is that the person being unseated is actually, he's one of the more liberal members, you know, he's one of the more progressive members of Congress, right. according to the roll call data. Um, and so, you know, in the piece I talk about how um, we could look at this as a as a progressive transformation, but I think that we're also looking at a generational transformation, right? Which is um, you're seeing a lot of the sort of older sort of party stalwarts mm-hmm. being replaced by younger candidates, um, being replaced by people of color, um, and I don't think that, that it's an accident that that's starting in these uh, in these safer districts um, because that's a, these are places that we know those candidates can win the general election. Um, 
and so I think if we if we take every single race and then we graft a, a progressive establishment narrative onto it, I think that we're missing um, a broader and, and I think at least as important transformation of the party itself, which is um, that the the sort of older generations are slowly race by race, you know, uh, cycle by cycle, being replaced by younger, hungrier, you know, more progressive, more diverse um, candidates mm-hmm. uh, who who I think will finally reflect the actual coalition of the, of the Democratic Party itself. Mm. Um, and to me, that's that's really inspirational, even if, obviously, we're not going to win every one of these races. You know, I'm still smarting from uh, from Dan Lipinski beating Marie Newman here in Illinois yes. um, during our primaries. Right. <laughs> just a narrow victory. And Lipinski is just, you know, totally useless. Um, and so that, that hurt, you know, and, and we have lost some, pro- some high-profile races um, that didn't go for the progressive wing. But mm-hmm. I think if you look at the broader picture, um, I think there's no question um, that younger, you know, younger, more diverse candidates are are staging a, a sort of a long-term takeover of the Democratic Party. And I, I don't think there's much of anything um, the establishment can do about that. And I think that's good news. And, and, and if, by the way, if you go back to, let's say, the Tea Party movement, and they shouldn't necessarily be a model for, for anything or anybody, but uh, sort of the, the uh, right-wing takeover of the uh, of the Republican Party took if you started at you know twenty ten uh, let's see two thousand and eight and the uh, the emergence of the Tea Party movement it took a good ten years for that to happen and of course they were at it uh, for years prior to that moving the party to the right so this may take some time I think it's fair to say but uh, I, I I think I agree with you David I think they're moving in the right uh, direction. So we'll leave that there for the moment because I want to jump into these uh, hearings and get a lot of yeah. uh, thoughts that you've been talking about uh, that you wrote about in your book. Yesterday's uh, hearing in the uh, Senate Judiciary Committee was, I think it's fair to say, utter pandemonium uh, throughout the day. Democrats objecting to the withholding of tens of thousands of documents from Kavanaugh's time serving as an advisor to George W. Bush. Uh, Democrats charging that Kavanaugh lied about his work on torture issues during his 2006 confirmation hearings for the federal D.C. Court of Appeals. And uh, some 70, 70 protesters carted out and arrested um, from the room uh, throughout the day at that first day and of these uh, very rushed hearings. Your thoughts uh, so far, at least, on the entire process unfolding right now in the U.S. Senate as Republicans scramble to hold a vote on Kavanaugh before the November midterms? Well, sure. I mean, it's a, it's a circus, you know. I mean, I, I think that the first couple of days of hearings have definitely not gone according to plan um, for, for what the Republicans wanted to, to see out of this. Um, and I think that, you know, I think that some very damaging information has come out, I think particularly today, um, where um, Patrick Leahy of, of Vermont uh, has basically accused Brett Kavanaugh of uh, uh-huh. conspiring to steal emails, to, to break into mm-hmm. um, the email systems of Democratic members of Congress in 2002 and 2003 um, to get inside information about what their strategy was to, to oppose uh, George W. Bush's uh, judicial nominations. Um, and it was a great piece of theater because you could see, you could tell that Kavanaugh had no idea that this was coming. Yep. Um, and he wasn't really able to deny it. Um, he just sort of twisted in the wind for a few minutes while, while they, he grilled him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that's indicative of how this has gone so far for the Republicans. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, they may very well still jam this nomination through, but I think um, what's being revealed over the past two days is that they are stuck with a much worse nominee with, with much greater baggage than I think anyone understood um, prior to the beginning of this process. Um, and I think there's a reason 
that Republicans don't want all of these documents released because um, something's in there that they don't like. Um, and I think it's I think it's related to Kavanaugh's service in the Bush administration. I think mm-hmm. it's related um, to the Bush administration's torture policies. Um, and I think it's also related to the general atmosphere of like total lawlessness of the early Bush administration. Um, you know, with the mm-hmm. you know the stovepiping of uh, of information um, into Cheney's office, and you know, all of the all of the things that went on that were really ugly related to uh, the war on terror and and the launching of the war in Iraq. Um, I think Kavanaugh is implicated in some of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I wish it was enough. I wish I wish I could say that those revelations would be enough yeah. um, to have a couple of Republican senators vote against him. But um, I've really, over the past couple of years, just lost faith um, that there are even two people, uh, two Republicans in the U.S. Senate who are willing to do the right thing. Yeah. You know, willing to take a political hit to do the right thing. I, I, I um, see no sign of that whatsoever. That Republicans no. control the entire process uh, still, no matter what comes out in these hearings. Um, and, of course, we knew that going in. And, and you know, we'll, we'll learn more about this situation you're talking about with these stolen emails. And, and that might be nice if somehow that derailed things. But the fact is the Republicans control the entire process. They uh, changed the rules to jam through uh, Neil Gorsuch previously. So all it requires is a bare uh, a majority. So there's not a lot of tools in the Democratic toolbox, it seems. Uh, Joe Scarborough, the former Republican congressman, was arguing on MSNBC on Tuesday morning. Uh, the Democrats should not have even showed up to the Senate hearings. Essentially, you know, as a former Republican, uh, he was laying out how Republicans would have uh, fought this. Uh, and he was speaking with, uh, well, contributor Sam Stein was responding. He made an important point here. Let me play this audio, David Ferris, and, and, uh, and get your thoughts on this, because it, it ties into your uh, book and everything else here. You know, I, I would certainly recommend that everybody around me not show up for the hearing because, as they said, it, you know, if they think it's like a banana republic, if they think they've been lied to, if they think that, that uh, these documents have been kept from them. I mean, they did a document dump on Labor Day, 42,000 documents. Don't You don't participate in a process that is that yeah. flawed. You review the documents and say, we're going to review the documents, and we will see you on Wednesday or Thursday. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's not just the 42,000. There was 100,000 documents that were held for presidential privilege, and that was announced on Friday of Labor Day weekend, which was a conspicuously timed news dump as well. You know, it, it just goes to the fact that when it comes to judicial nominations in the federal courts, uh, the two parties are playing entirely different ballgames here. Uh, Republicans, as everyone will recall, just didn't take a hearing on Merrick Garland. They refused to meet with him. They didn't hold a hearing. They said, we will wait eight months. Uh, They even floated the idea of holding the Supreme Court seat open, having eight members of the Supreme Court for Hillary Clinton's presidency. This was a thing that was discussed. It wasn't just Ted Cruz. Uh, John McCain actually discussed the idea for a while. And Democrats, um, you know, you can say to their credit or to uh, their detriment, depending on your vantage point, just play different, just play differently. They are engaged in the to process, they are respecting the norms, uh, and they feel like they should go at this through those processes. And there's a huge brewing frustration among progressives over the fact that they are not more aggressively adjudicating this, that they're not more aggressively attacking Kavanaugh, and that they are going to sit in that hearing room today and tomorrow, ask him pointed questions, and ultimately let the process move forward. 
Uh, David Ferris, Democrats just play differently from Republicans. They want to tend to want to go along with the process. Uh, did they make, make a mistake here in doing that? Should they have just walked out or just, you know, refused to show up, given all the chicanery with these documents uh, and the geo that the uh, GOP and the Trump administration are trying to get away with? And I'm glad, by the way, that Stein mentioned that McCain, John McCain, who Democrats spent the past week or so revering had yes actually suggested that republicans might never allow a vote on any democratic nominee to the court if hillary clinton had won in 2016 so it it you know it wasn't just merrick garland so have democrats figured out yet or will they ever that they are still bringing a a, a knife to a bazooka fight here when dealing with republicans no, I mean they obviously haven't figured it out, right? Um, I mean we're still living in the in the dream palace of of the previous normative order, um, and there's a lot of Senate Democrats. I mean a lot of Senate Senate Democrats who are clinging mm -hmm. to the fantasy um, that if they adhere to Senate norms, that at some point in the future we will return to what they see as regular order. Um, Republicans will come to the table, um, and we can go back to the you know forming gangs of eight or whatever it was that used to happen in the early 2000s mm -hmm. to make policy. Um, and that universe is just long gone, uh, and it's not coming back. And so, yeah, I think that there was a missed opportunity here. I don't think it's the, you know, I don't think this is the biggest deal in the world, um, but I think there was a missed opportunity here to walk out of the first day of the hearings, um, to send a message uh, that the process here won't be tolerated. Um, but I actually think, you know, the Democrats should be going beyond process arguments right now, right? Um, I think it's like, you know, you're not going to win an election based on, you know, X number of documents were with help from me. Um, I think that the, the broader problem here um, is that the way that we make Supreme Court appointments is, is, is bananas. Um, that is, it's a, it's a lottery uh, that you, at this point, you're only allowed to win uh, if you control the presidency and you control the Senate. Mm -hmm. right? Otherwise, you don't get a Supreme Court nomination. And so I think in addition to the process complaints, which are valid, but, you know, no one cares. Um, I think in addition to the process complaints, we have to start making the case um, that the nomination process, the appointment process to the, to the United States Supreme Court is fundamentally broken. Um, and we have to start making threats about things like court packing or else the Republicans will never take us seriously. Um, you know, that said, I think that there, I mean, I think there is a price to pay for not participating in the hearings at all. Um, and that price is, uh, you know, sort of the opportunity to get into the public record, um, some of the, some of the ethical problems that, that Brett Kavanaugh seems to have. Um, and so that's, so that's beyond, you know, hiding the documents. It's things that we know, um, that were revealed in these hearings that I don't think we knew before. So, um, but I also, you know, I mean, you could, I mean, Democrats could have held a press conference, um, you know, outside of the Senate building and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and outlined all these problems while not participating in this, in this charade, you know. Um, and that's, you know, that's what it is. These hearings are, are just, they're, they're farces. Um, they're but farces in which the Republican nominees pretend um, to say that they will, you know, respect precedent, you know, mm -hmm. uh, stare decisis, all this stuff. It's like a script, you know. Um, Roe v. Wade is, is settled law, or, or as Brett Kavanaugh says, settled precedent, um, which you can, you know, you can drive a truck in between the, the subtext there. So, I, you know, yeah, like with a lot of the things over the past few months, I really disagree um, with the way that Senate Democrats are going about this. Um, but, if on, not, but if not process, of, like, David, if not process uh, points... What what should they be uh, focusing on? I mean, we know that in, it's true for Kavanaugh or whoever would be appointed by this particular president, really any Republican president at this point. We know what they're going to do if they get that fifth seat with a, a right winger. I mean, I'm I'm not sure how they should have gone about 
uh, fighting this nomination at this point. Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of ways that they could have gone about it, uh, and I think that you see different senators emphasizing sort of different aspects of why we should not hold a you know why we should not confirm Brett Kavanaugh right now. Um, you know, you have uh, you have some senators saying things like you know the president's under investigation. Um, we can't you know we can't confirm someone until we know what the Mueller report says. This kind of stuff, um, which I you know I think is an effective mm-hmm. um, rhetorical strategy, but again. What we really have to be thinking about here is like, is the strategy to stop, you know, is, to, is the strategy to try to change the minds of three or four Republican senators um, and, and turn them and get them to vote with us on this nominee? Um, I'm deeply skeptical that that's possible. Um, and I think sort of any, any strategy that, that takes that possibility seriously um, is, is so doomed to fail. You know, and, and that's no disrespect to the activists who are running these campaigns right now. But I think if, if this nomination was going to get stopped, it would have gotten stopped in committee or, you know, Collins or Murkowski or whoever mm-hmm. would have said, like, you know, I'm not going to vote for this guy, so don't bother. Um, and then, then that person would have been pulled and we'd have a different nominee. Um, but we would have a nominee, right? So I think mm-hmm. that another thing that we have to be talking about um, is the unfairness of the process, uh, the fact that a Supreme Court majority was stolen from the Democrats and yep. what we're going to do about it. You know, like, what's the ultimate solution here? Um, and why why aren't any of our elected officials um, sort of talking in public, thinking outside of the box um, about strategies that they might pursue um, next time they're in power to, to, to make right what is going on here? Because this is a travesty. Yeah, and I got to say, I've heard a lot of conversation, and I would say largely in the wake of your, but not enough conversation and not enough from elected uh, Democratic officials, but conversation that I would say is largely in the wake of your book, Time to Fight Dirty, about Democrats, yes, packing the U.S. Supreme Court by adding enough seats to retake a Democratic majority if they ever get control of the White House and both houses of Congress again. This, uh, as you noted last time you were on, can be done with legislation in Congress. No constitutional amendment needed, as many may not realize. Uh, so what what have you been hearing in response to that argument from from Democrats and elected Democrats since you began loudly making that argument earlier this year. I mean, it does seem like at this point our only real hope on this, frankly. Yeah, no, I mean, I agree, obviously. Um, You know, I think I still still haven't seen an elected Democrat uh, willing to touch this argument. Um, But you saw, I don't know if you saw, Michael Avenatti tweeted this morning um, that the Democrats should should enlarge the court to 11 um, when they take power again. Good. Um, And and so I, I think that there's... You know, there's people out, you know, Vox did a piece about it, um, which I was interviewed for. And, um, but, you know, so court packing has had kind of a moment, um, as I think we all on the progressive left realize uh, the sort of long-term implications of, of Donald Trump getting to fill two seats on the United States Supreme Court in his mm-hmm. first two years in office. Um, and again, like, you know, under normal, normal circumstances, um, if Donald Trump had won this election legitimately, uh, if Republicans had not staged uh, uh, their holdup of Merrick Garland, um, if we did not know everything that we know about about sort of the interference of a hostile foreign power in our elections, you know, nobody would be talking about court packing with good reason. Um, but uh, but the last two or three years of our our history have led us to this moment. You know, uh, Neil Gorsuch is illegitimate. Um, Brett Kavanaugh will be illegitimate. Um, and I think the Democrats are well within their power to rectify that um, those acts of illegitimacy. By, by doing something perfectly constitutional that's just as constitutional as what Republicans did to Merrick Garland, and that's that's add seats to the court. Um, and that's you know. been the, uh, and i got to tell you, I mean, since we spoke about this last February, I mean, that's been the one thing that has given me hope, the possibility that we could 
uh, you know, that could be done in the future to uh, unwind the, the damage that's been done over the past couple of years. Uh, very quickly, uh, and maybe not fair to ask you to answer this very quickly, but uh, we got to get out. So as a political scientist and the author of Time to Fight Dirty, what would you like to or hope to see if... And it's still a big if, uh, if Democrats regain control of the House this November or even the Senate. How should they fight dirty, as you say, if they're finally able to regain control of one or both houses uh, while Donald Trump remains in the White House? Well, I mean, obviously, Democrats will not be able to make um, meaningful legislation because it has to be signed by the president. Um, So if we I I think the most likely outcome right now is we get the House and we, we narrowly miss getting the Senate. Um, I don't know if you know, you saw this memo that went around last week, um, where Republicans were, uh, you know, panicking about all of the investigations that Democrats might have opened up into yep. the president and his affairs. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, affairs, you know, broadly, not just uh, extramarital affairs, right. but, you know, that's here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, um, every House committee, you know, there should be a series of special committees formed um, to look into, uh, you know, the president's violation of the emoluments clause, the Russia investigation. Um, you know, the president's obstruction of justice, uh, the, the wanton corruption inside the executive branch uh, of the federal government right now, um, the family separation policy. You know, I mean, what, what Democrats should do with the House is they should immediately open like 10 investigations um, into the president, into the, into the dirty dealings of this Republican Party. Um, and they should keep those committees going for the entire two years uh, that they are in power. Um, and while they're doing that, um, they, should, they should pass a bunch of bills that they know won't go anywhere. Um, but that lay the, the framework for a, for a real progressive uh, set of policy initiatives if they ever are able to capture the Senate, the House, and the presidency at the same time, um, which I hope will be in 2021. So it, it's sort of like a two-track operation. Um, yeah. on, on the one hand, uh, you want to you help bring the president down. You want to you have him twist in the wind. You want to compel him to speak uh, before these committees. Um, you want to dig up all the information that is being hidden from us um, by, by Republican, Vichy Republicans who are cooperating with the president to bury all this information. But I think, uh, I think it's important for the voters to see um, that, you know, even while we're investigating the president, we also have a policy agenda, you know, um, and uh, there's something to be said for passing bills that may go nowhere now, but that, that have, have life um, after, we take, uh, after we take control of the chamber and the presidency. Let so I, I think that we should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. Um, and uh, I, I don't think the Democrats should immediately impeach the president, but I think um, if these committees uncover the kind of wrongdoing that I'm sure they will, um, then I don't think that the party should be afraid to impeach him, uh, even though I think there's a lot of people sort of scoldingly saying, like, oh, no, we shouldn't do that. I absolutely think the president should be impeached um, if, if, uh, if serious wrongdoing is uncovered by these investigative, these investigative bodies or by the Mueller report. Um, I, I think that that's a slam dunk. Let the investigations begin and let the conversation about packing the U.S. Supreme Court begin Press your uh, senators and congressmen uh, to get a movement started towards that, because that is, I think, uh, still our only way uh, out of this mess. Even if Donald Trump is removed uh, or or eventually leaves office, we're still going to be stuck with his Supreme Court. And there is something that we can do about it. Uh, Check out uh, more details on what we can do about it in David Ferris's new book. It's time to fight dirty. How Democrats can build a lasting majority in American politics. And also follow his work at theweek.com and on the Twitters at David M. Ferris. Always great talking to you, my friend. And unless you have another baby, I will be bothering you again very soon. I can't wait, Brad. Looking forward to it. Thanks Th- for having me on the show. Thank you, brother. Okay, a quick break. Uh, some 
Kind of extraordinary news here breaking while I was talking to David Ferris. I'm going to take a quick break, read it, and share it with you right here on the Bradcast. Wow, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hey, this is Brad. Remember me, the guy who was warning you about Donald Trump from the day he entered the race, when the rest of the U.S. media were telling you his candidacy was a joke, that he'd never win, and that Hillary Clinton had it in the bag. We told you otherwise from the beginning and up until Election Day. Well, we may have been right, but we still don't have corporate or foundational support. We still rely on you to stay on your public airwaves. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate to support the work that Desi Doyen and I do every day. This country ain't going to save itself, but we can all do it together. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Zounds. It's one of those Zounds moments, Desi Doyen. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. It looks like the Trump administration may now officially have its own deep throat. Ay, ay, ay. Yeah, this is amazing. Um, So I'm going to read you uh, from this op-ed in the New York Times that was published anonymously, uh, I guess just within the last hour or so. Uh, With the note, the Times today is taking the rare step of publishing an anonymous op-ed. We have done so at the request of the author, a senior official in the Trump administration, whose identity is known to us and whose job would be jeopardized by its disclosure. We believe publishing the essay anonymously is the only way to deliver an important perspective to our readers Man, okay, so let me just read to you this uh, from this here. Um, President Trump is facing a test to his presidency unlike any faced by a modern American leader. It's not just that the special counsel looms large or the country is bitterly divided over Mr. Trump's leadership or even that his party might well lose the House to an opposition hell-bent on his downfall. The dilemma, which he does not fully grasp, is that many of the senior officials in his own administration are working diligently from within the from within to frustrate parts of his agenda and his worst inclinations i would know i am one of them uh he goes on this senior administration official this anonymous senior administration official it could also be a she Uh, You're right. Uh, He or she goes on to say, to be clear, ours is not the popular resistance of the left. The headline for this, by the way, is I am part of the resistance inside the Trump administration. Uh, Ours is not the popular resistance of the left. We want the administration to succeed and think that many of its policies may have already made America safer and more prosperous. But we feel our first duty is to this country. And the president continues to act in a matter that in a manner that is detrimental to the health of our republic. That is why many Trump appointees have vowed to do what we can to preserve our democratic institutions while thwarting Mr. Trump's more misguided impulses until he is out of office. The root of the problem is the president's amorality. 
Anyone who works with him knows he is not moored to any discernible first principles that guide his decision-making. In addition to his mass marketing of the notion that the press is the, quote, enemy of the people, President Trump's impulses are generally anti-trade and anti-democratic. That's small d, democratic. The writer says, don't get me wrong, there are bright spots that the near-ceaseless negative coverage of the administration fails to capture, effective deregulation, historic tax reform, more robust military, and more. But these successes have come despite, not because of, the president's leadership style, which is impetuous, adversarial, petty, and ineffective. From the White House to executive branch departments and agencies, senior officials will privately admit their daily disbelief at the commander-in-chief's comments and actions. Most are working to insulate their operations from his whims. Meetings with him veer off topic and off the rails. He engages in repetitive rants and his impulsiveness results in half-baked, ill-informed and occasionally reckless decisions that have to be walked back. Again, this is from a senior administration official inside the White House, writing in the New York Times as an op-ed today. Uh, the writer goes on to say the erratic behavior would be more concerning if it weren't for unsung heroes in and around the White House. Some of his aides have been cast as villains by the media, but in private, they have gone to great lengths to keep bad decisions contained to the West Wing, though they are clearly not always successful. It may be cold comfort in this chaotic era, but Americans should know that there are adults in the room. We fully recognize what is happening, and we are trying to do what's right, even when Donald Trump won't. Uh, the writer goes on now to talk about uh, Trump's preference for autocrats and dictators and uh, his resistance to um, respond to Russia's alleged poisoning of a former Russian spy, Trump's anger at keeping sanctions in place against Russia. Um, given the instability many witnessed, there were early whispers within the cabinet of invoking the 25th Amendment, which would start a complex process for removing the president. So they were actually talking about the 25th Amendment, probably back around the time that we were talking about it on this show. The writer says, but no one wanted to precipitate a constitutional crisis. So we will do what we can to steer the administration in the right direction until one way or another it's over. The author goes on to cite uh, John McCain's role as a model of civility that should be aspired to. No comment there for me for now. Um, and finally uh, concludes, there is a quiet resistance within the administration of people choosing to put country first. But the real difference will be made by everyday citizens rising above politics, reaching across the aisle and resolving to shed the labels in favor of a single one. Americans. Uh, now, uh, wow. First, um, <laughs> yeah, yowza. Um, Trump uh, just now, according to uh, AP, has responded to this op-ed by once again by a senior administration official in the New York Times, uh, currently anonymous. Uh, Trump calls it uh, "quote really a disgrace." Uh, AP uh, now reports also that the White House press secretary, presumably that Sarah Huckabee Sanders, is calling the author of the op-ed, quote, a coward 
who should do the right thing and resign. But hey, for all we know, the author could be Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> it's true. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely true. It could be Sarah Huckabee Sanders even. I mean, to me, uh, this is a very stunning and disturbing op-ed and I'm I'm shocked but but then again I'm wondering is this really news so much because we do know that uh, we've had rumblings of this in previous uh, articles over the last two years yeah. so but but it always comes from an anonymous White House official who says this or that and then Donald Trump goes out and says oh that's fake news they made up the quote True. And now you have an actual person verified whose identity is verified by the New York Times, by the New York even Times. if they don't say it out loud. So. It, yeah. So we have to trust them here. But uh, this seems pretty legit and a long way for them to go to make up an entire op ed. And yeah. even Trump is not uh, does not currently appear to be claiming that, although I'm sure he will soon. But it is kind of cold comfort because, to me, I would like to see that person uh, step up and actually be a patriot. And instead of, you know, protecting us behind the scenes, but still effectuating his agenda, which is very dangerous for Americans, I'd like to see this person, you know, stop him. Well, he he or she is arguing he is stopping him here and that uh, if he or she were to resign, then the power to do so, at least the power to curb many of Donald Trump's worst impulses uh, would theoretically be weakened. Hmm. Very interesting. Uh, wow. Well, uh, I think this one's going to leave a mark. I think it's going to drive him even crazier than he has already been, oh, uh, than he already is, frankly. I mean, listen, this is the call coming from inside the House, uh, so to speak. This is going to be like a bomb exploding in the White House, I think, uh, figuratively, of course. Um, word was already that he was going around the White House trying to figure out who had spoken to Bob Woodward for his new book, Fear, Inside the Trump White House. Uh, things are going to get a lot crazier before they stop getting crazier, I'm afraid. All right. Uh, sorry that that uh, has truncated some of our Supreme Court coverage uh, that we had hoped to uh, give you today. But, well, tomorrow's always another day. Uh, Got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to my guest this week, uh, the week's David Ferris today, and to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. Drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, I am the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you who support our work by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.